0: So I'd like to thank everybody for coming today and um, take this opportunity to thank the Mershon Center for allowing me to work on my dissertation turning it into a book manuscript. Um, I notice it's about 12.15. I'm going to really push. I know that people have classes around 1.30 or so, um, so I'm going to push to get it done so we can have some Q&A and get out of here. Um, bear with me if that doesn't work out in operation. Don't look at that. Um, so let's begin with the brief overview of the U.S. missile defense debate. Efforts to develop a national missile defense, and by that I mean efforts to protect the entire country from an incoming ICBM, have been discussed in every decade since the advent of nuclear weapons. However, after 50 years and over $110 billion spent, national missile defense represents the longest running and most expensive military research and development program in U.S. history. During the Eisenhower administration, at a time when missile technology was very rudimentary, at a time when the Soviet Union didn't have missiles to actually hit the U.S., the U.S. was considering ways to protect ourselves from incoming missile. During that time, even though the technology was at its nascent stages, um, members of the administration thought that it warranted enough attention. It, was, um, it looked good enough to keep going. But. In the 1960s, under the influence of Robert McNamara, during the Kennedy administrations and and the Johnson administration, um, this same body of technical information no longer seemed um, to have potential. And people started thinking that really, you couldn't build a missile defense system. This culminated in the 1972 signing of the ABM treaty, at which time there was a general consensus that missile defense technology was far enough into the future as to be considered impossible at the present. This all changed, as we know, in 1983 with President Reagan's announcement of the Strategic Defense Initiative. On March 23rd, 1983, he said, I know this is a formidable task, one that may not be accomplished before the end of this century. Yet, current technology has attained a level of sophistication where it's reasonable for us to begin this effort," end quote. So President Reagan thought that the technology was not currently able to build this system or could not build this system, but it could happen in the future and it had enough potential that we should pursue it. As we all know, a big debate um, emerged in the 1980s over this. And in the 1990s, particularly under President Clinton, um, there was a general skepticism within the U- US administration that not only should, or over whether um, missile defense should be pursued but whether or not it actually could be built. On September 1st, 2000, so at the very end of the Clinton administration, President Clinton said, quote, there is a reasonable chance that all these challenges can be met in time, but I simply cannot conclude with the information I have today that we have enough confidence in the technology to move forward to deployment. So again, he's not saying that it can't be done, only that what can be done today doesn't give him... Um, enough confidence to go forward. That all changed one year later, December 2, 2001, when President George W. Bush, based on the same body of technical information, said, quote, the U.S. will begin to field missile defense capabilities to protect the U.S. These initial capabilities emerge from our existing research and development program and will be built on the test bed that we have already constructed. So, same information, completely different perspective on whether or not we can build this missile defense system. So this brief overview leads me to the puzzle of today's talk. Why, after more than 50 years and $110 billion spent, can U.S. policymakers still not agree on whether missile defense systems to protect the entire country can be built? And I think to explore this puzzle, I'm going to um, relay some analogies that have been made between um, missile defense and the Apollo program or the mission to put a man on the moon. Over the last few years of reading stuff about missile defense, I came across the interesting point that different camps use the exact same comparison to use two very different, or to make two different um, conclusions. So one group uses uh, the Apollo program and says it's just like efforts to build a national missile defense system. This group says that the two are similar in the immensity of the task, the novelty of the technology, and the significance to U.S. Um, national interests. In this sense, both of these programs are similar in that it is difficult to know what eventual technical developments will reveal. However, another group of folks over the past 40, 50 years, or since the Apollo, said so 30, 40 years, have said that these programs are nothing alike. And in this sense, they say that the presence of an unpredictable adversary completely differentiates efforts to build a missile defense from those to put a man on the moon. For instance, Lawrence Friedman said, quote, the moon was not attempting to repel borders and counterattack, end quote. Or William Broad said, quote, unlike the moon landing, a feat of pure technology centered on a struggle with the force of gravity, defensive systems would have to deal with an unpredictable and intelligent enemy. So in this sense, the folks that are trying to figure out if a missile defense system can be built, are faced with a great deal of uncertainty on on what it needs to do in the first place. So, given these two analogies that are in contrast with one another, that the Apollo and missile defense systems are both like each other and unlike each other, I, as a good academic, say both are correct. Um, I say that if you look at this, missile defense, the puzzle of missile defense, is rooted in irreducible uncertainty. Policymakers don't exactly know what they need to do or what the required capability is due to this unpredictable and reactive adversary, and they don't know at any given point in time really what they can do because of the complex and novel nature of the technology at hand. So where they're coming from and where they need to go, both are points of irreducible uncertainty. To get at this puzzle, try to actually explain what's going on and how policymakers behave, I ask this question. How do policymakers process information under conditions of irreducible uncertainty? Quite generally, I argue that policymakers proceed from these points of irreducible uncertainty to finite technical judgments by implementing their strategic beliefs about prudence in a nuclear environment, about how states should behave in a nuclear environment. That's where I get the catchy title of why the should determines the can. Um, Now, briefly, I'm going to give an outline of how the talk's going to go, just so you can follow along in between bites of sandwiches and so forth. Um, So, Part one is a definition of terms, where I will actually say what I mean by irreducible uncertainty, and then I will distinguish interest-based lying from bias as it applies to national missile defense. Two previous research going over the analytic foci of these works and the shortcomings three, um, the basic argument of why uh, should determines can. And under part three and part four, which is my case study, I'm hit to kill technology, I'll proceed first by going over notions of should, or policymakers' strategic beliefs, and then second go into the can, are these points of irreducible uncertainty on what the technology um, can currently do and needs to do. And then the third part, or the third segment of parts three and four, parts three and four, would be um, the biases. And that is how do policymakers use their strategic beliefs about nuclear strategy to define or to deal with the irreducible uncertainty about the can? Finally, part five, I'll go over the conclusions and the implications. Implications, very briefly, um, for the norms versus interests debate generally in IR, the offense-defense balance literature, the literature on nuclear revolution, and the um, Contemporary Policy and Academic Debates on Nuclear Proliferation. Okay. So let's go to definition of terms. What do I mean by irreducible uncertainty? Basically, by irreducible uncertainty, I'm talking about two factors. The character of the issue, or character of information, and the character of the issue area. So first, character of the relevant information. The type of uncertainty that I'm discussing is a reflection of the ambiguous or incomplete content that results from too little information. So either policymakers have all the potential assumptions and relationships that could describe the issue in front of them, but they don't know the relevance, or one or more of those assumptions and relationships are missing. In either case, they don't have enough information about the problem, and they don't exactly know what the problem looks like. But this is; these are the conditions that give rise to uncertainty. The character of the issue area is what gives rise to the irreducible aspect. So I'm saying that uncertainty is irreducible when the nature of the processes or dynamics comprising an issue area prevent the initiation of additional experience, that experience which is necessary to get more information. So either the character of the issue area prevents um, the accumulation of experience because... Um, it's not available. Some reasons why it may not be available are that the events or processes comprising or defining the issue area occur randomly and thus cannot be initiated, or they're not random but they're not at the control of the policymakers, or the costs of gaining the the experience necessary are prohibitive. Some potential reasons why the costs are prohibitive. um, Experience results in the actual outcome policymakers are trying to reduce, prevent, or avoid. Experience prevents policymakers from enacting a solution after the fact. Experience results in a negative effect greater than the benefit of the solution. Or experience um, forces policymakers to violate some norm of appropriateness. Okay. So these are the, the rough characteristics that describe the situation of irreducible uncertainty in general. And then throughout the talk in my argument and case study section, hopefully I'll put some meat on these very general bones and uh, allow you to understand how it applies. Okay, distinguishing biases from lying. So, like most arguments of this type, the easiest sort of alternative explanation is that it's not beliefs, it's simply policymakers being self-interested that are pursuing what benefits them, either partisan terms, electoral terms, or bureaucratic. So how can we tell that policymakers' belief structures aren't merely rhetorical facades that allow supporters and opponents to justify their pursuit of the missile defense policy that best fits their interests? So if one has picked up a paper in the last 25 years and ever looked at missile defense, they know that politics are at play, that this debate has taken place within um, partisan cleavages and electoral competitions. However, there are a couple factors that lead me to conclude that biases are at work, not just interest-based distortions of, quote, facts. First, the nuance of the technical assessments. These assessments are not merely thumbs up or thumbs down, yay or nay sorts of things. But they're complex in their reasoning. And therefore, the line of logic that supports the reasoning of these nuanced assessments needs to be analyzed. And you can't simply say that people are saying these things because they want to get ahead. That tells you why, but it doesn't tell you about the content of the actual assessment. Next, the consistency of technical assessments. Policymakers have been locked into a particular way of thinking over 25 years across different types of of technology, and in spite of both change in the strategic environment and the technology itself. So if you were looking at these policymakers um, as interest-driven, purely, then you would think that they could adapt to the situation. And in some situations, they would find it, you know, advantageous to oppose, others to support. And they would change the logic for why they're opposing and why they're supporting. But as the case studies will will talk about, or case study will talk about, um, if you ask someone in 1983 why they should or shouldn't build a laser in space to strike down Soviet missiles, and in 2006 why they shouldn't build a hit-to-kill interceptor to destroy a potential rogue missile, they'll give you the same reason. Different technology, different adversary, different time, usually even a different individual. But depending on whether they support or oppose, they give you the same logic of reasoning in saying yay or nay. Okay. Previous research. The analytic foci of previous analyses has primarily been (laughs) policy-oriented. In this case, usually, um, the authors themselves have taken a position that either missile defense is good or bad, and they marshal the evidence to say why this is so. Some examples of this, some great examples, is Michael O'Hanlon in 2004, David Denoon in 95, and then Keith Payne in 91. All of these authors have had not just an analytic stake, but actually, with the case of Keith Payne in particular, a sizable role in the policymaking process on missile defense. <laughs> Some of the academic literature focused on missile defense has been Bob Powell's 2003 article in International Security, where he looks at the relationship between missile defense and war, and the motivation of policymakers by Charles Glazer in 1991, which he does something quite similar to what I'm doing here today. However, all of these works do not consider the presence of irreducible uncertainty in missile defense technology. That is, even if they actually do consider the technical debate. They don't consider the presence of irreducible uncertainty. Usually, technology is considered as a realm wholly um, run by physicists and engineers. And it's a, it's a separate process that takes place over on the side that either detracts from or supports the position of why missile defense should or shouldn't be built. This results in these works not considering the effect not just the cause of irreducible uncertainty, but the effect irreducible uncertainty has on policymaking behavior. So, let's get into the meat of things here. The argument. So, first, I'm going to talk about this notion of should, or the strategic belief structures that policymakers have regarding nuclear weapons. I'm going to put a big table up here. You don't need to try to take it in all at once, I'll go point by point. But what are we looking at here? So. These, this warfighting and arms control, these both represents, re- represent belief structures or ideal typical paradigms that capture the rationale for why policymakers support or oppose national missile defense. The warfighting belief structure begins from the premise that nuclear weapons have not significantly altered the conditions of the anarchic system. And this rationale explains why missile defense supporters believe that the, that the strategic value of pursuing and possessing a missile defense system is greater than the strategic costs. The arms control belief structure begins from the opposite premise, that nuclear weapons have significantly altered the effects of the anarchic international system, and this explains why opponents believe that strategic strategic costs are greater than the strategic value of pursuing and possessing a missile defense system. So to go through... Oh, to unclutter these things and apologize for introducing more terms to international security, um, the warfighting and arms control terms... Roughly correspond to Robert Jervis's spiral versus deterrence models, respectively, George Quester's distinction between the Omaha and Cambridge perspectives, and Charles Glazer's um, distinction between the damage limitation and military denial schools on one hand and the uh, punitive retaliation school on the other. So, if either of these or any of these are familiar to you and help you understand, great. If not, disregard. So, let's go through the table real quickly. The first assumption. On the one hand, the warfighting perspective says the security dilemma is still in effect, while the arms control perspective says that mutual vulnerability between nuclear states now supersedes such concerns. Assumption two, warfighting folks say the perceived weaknesses by other states still causes conflict, while the arms control people say that due to the high costs of a nuclear conflict, misperception is now the only way one state would attack another. On the third assumption, warfighters say that relative gains still matter even in the presence of nuclear weapons, and thus victory in a nuclear conflict is still possible. The arms control group says, the absolute scale of a single nuclear strike is so great that relative costs are currently irrelevant. No one can win. Victory is impossible in a nuclear exchange. The implications. First, warfighters say deterrence is is only credible if the costs are reasonable. Arms control folks say the potential costs are so great they can never be reasonable. Therefore, a threat of a nuclear strike is ne- never credible. Number two, warfighters say that cooperation still hurts security because states can always be assumed that they're going to cheat, whereas the arms control people don't come from a Pollyanna perspective of assuming benign intentions, intentions. but they say that cooperation enhances security by allowing clear and consistent communication that may prevent misperceptions. And the third one, the warfighting group says that technology is the best means to enhance security because it increases the ability of that state to inflict costs and decreases the cost that can be inflicted, while the arms control folks say that you can no longer increase the cost to be inflicted on an adversary with any um, great um, effect. And the actual pursuit of trying to defend will incite the atta- an attack from a state that otherwise wouldn't have occurred. Okay. So let's move to the can part of the argument. And first, the required capability. Determining what a technology needs to do requires that policymakers have knowledge of two issues, the adversary and the interception goal. So first, the adversary. This is who exactly will be launching the incoming missile, What are they currently capable of developing and what they will be able to develop at some point in the future? And what will they do? Or what is the adversary's intent? None of these can be known with certainty when trying to define the required capability of missile defense technology. And then the goal. If you could figure out who it would be that would strike you and what they could do now and in the future, you still cannot, based on technical facts, figure out what percentage needs to be intercepted to enhance U.S. security. Turning to the other side, U.S. capability. The other half to determining if a missile defense technology little information is available about what can and cannot be done with respect to current data and what that current data means for the future. This is due to novelty. Missile defense research has consistently been on the cutting edge of science and technology. This has resulted in limited data due to test failures, scriptedness, and the measurement of these phenomena, or measurement errors. So there's no way of knowing whether the paucity of data and the difficulties encountered are the inevitable conditions for a program of immense complexity or indications of the feat's overall difficulty and high probability of ultimate failure. Again, I'll go through this table so you don't have to try to take it in all at once. The third part of the argument is the role of strategic beliefs as policymakers define the required capability and the U.S. capability of missile defense technology. So first, the biases on the required capability. Generally, or the, the overall point of uncertainty, when policymakers that support and oppose missile defense try to reduce this, supporters minimize potential risk. Their belief that an anarchic international system continues to make relative gains concerns the paramount concern for states leads them to minimize the potential risk involved in pursuing and possessing an NMD system. They think everyone is already out there trying to best um, enhance their security, and they will not react to what we are doing because they are already doing what they need to do. On the supporter side, generally when they confront these points of uh, irreducible uncertainty that I've just spoken of, they maximize the potential risk. Their belief that the presence of nuclear weapons ameliorates the security dilemma leads them to conclude that mutual vulnerability among nuclear states is a beneficial point of equilibrium, and a missile defense system would only serve to decrease U.S. security by inciting adversaries. More specifically, when supporters look at the adversary, their belief that the security dilemma continues to dominate interstate relations leads them to conclude that states are always maximizing their military capability. Opponents, they view intentions and capability as contingent. They say that states can recognize the benefit of mutually assured destruction and be trusted not to pursue technological advantage. In terms of the goal, supporters say that gradual and minimal interception is okay because it enhances U.S. security by reducing costs. Not totally, but any cost that can be reduced helps U.S. security. On the other hand, opponents believing that the current framework of arms control treaties' bilateral negotiations is working just fine, they say that the goal of the required capability must be 100%, and that must occur as soon as it's deployed. Anything less would be worse in the current situation. Okay, biases on the US capability. Overall, supporters look to that uncertainty about the significance of current data for future developments and see it as the potential for success. Their belief in the strategic value <coughs> allows them to think that there is no real risk to pursuing this, so why not see what can happen? The only thing that will happen is that maybe we can um, reduce the costs that other states can inflict. Opponents see the potential for failure in this uncertainty because they see the pursuit of missile defense as an imprudent strategy for enhancing state security, with little chance of being successful and a high probability of increasing international tensions. When both sides look at the complexity, um, supporters use this as a reason to excuse the limits of the existing data. Going back to that analogy um, between missile defense and the Apollo program, they say, this is a really big program, almost unprecedented in US history. Data is limited, but look how difficult it is. On the other hand, opponents look at that same complexity, and they say, yeah, look how difficult it is. It's difficult right now, and look how many more steps we have to go before anything good would happen. On the issue of errors, supporters are always quick to point to the cause of the error and to say that it's insignificant. Um, Oftentimes, the cause itself is. However, on the opponent's side, they look at these errors and say the cause is irrelevant. The result is there hasn't been very good data produced from the test due to the errors. And finally... (coughs) When they look at existing data, supporters say, hey, this doesn't disconfirm the required capability. Opponents say, it's very, very short from the required capability. Okay. Now let's try to get a bit more specific and turn to my case study of hit-to-kill technology. So first, some uh, brief overview of data and methods. First, interviews. Between December 2004 and August 2005, I conducted 52 one- to two-hour interviews with scientists, government officials, and policy experts in Washington, D.C. These were individuals who have taken part in the missile defense debate from 1983 to the present. I also have done archival (laughs) research of about 100 reports um, from government and non-government sources um, to compile two different chronologies. So some examples of these reports have been from the various missile defense agencies, Strategic Defense Initiative Organization, BMDO, MDA, um, the Defense uh, Department of Energy and Lawrence Livermore and Los Alamos Labs, Office of Technology Assessment, Government Accountability-slash-Accounting Office, and the National Security Council, um, as well as journalistic sources such as Aviation Weekly and Space Technology, the New York Times, and The Washington Post. So the first chronology traces out the character of information, by which I mean the level of incompleteness and ambiguity um, that is relevant to determining the ability to build lasers and hit-to-kill technology. The second chronology traces out policymakers' statements about the ability to develop such no- such technologies at the same points in time. So case selection, I chose to really zero in on X-ray lasers from 1983 to 88 and hit-to-kill technology, this ground-based um, rocket. Interceptor, um, from 1996 to 2007. I did this for three reasons. One, each of these, or both of these programs, um, were the centerpiece of the proposed system for that era. Each was considered in a different strategic environment: the X-ray laser during the Cold War, the hit-to-kill technology post-Cold War, and post-9/11. Um, and in each program, they w- they have been considered by different individuals occupying the scientific, government official, and policy expert roles. So, now a brief background. When I'm asking, is hit-to-kill technology possible, or how have policymakers considered this, what is hit-to-kill? What is the technical feat at question? This has often been described as trying to hit a bullet with a bullet, both in awe and in uh, sort of pushing it aside as an irrelevant and impossible task. So, first in trying to hit a bullet with a bullet. An ICBM is fired, likely from a state that's thousands of miles away. Second, the incoming missile is identified and located by a network of sensors and radars, and this is communicated to an interceptor, which is basically a missile that currently is either at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California or Fort Greeley up in Alaska. Um, Fourth, over the next 10 to 20 minutes, the incoming missile and the interceptor, now with the location or the trajectory In hand, each travel approximately 15,000 miles per hour on a course to reach the apogees in space. Fifth, once the kill vehicle has reached space, it turns on its onboard sensors and scans for the decoy and the warheads or decoys and warheads in space. And finally, the kill vehicle intercepts the warhead through a direct collision. So when policymakers are saying whether or not hit-to-kill technology is possible, These are the series of feats that they are making a judgment on. So first, let's look at the should of hit-to-kill technology. Missile defense supporters' um, warfighting positions. And in doing this, I'm going to go through their three basic expressions um, through some representative quotes that I got from uh, research and interviews. First supporters said, the MAD doctrine is outdated. In early 2001, then-National security, uh, security Advisor Condoleezza Rice said, quote, We set out to win the intellectual argument first, that there did need to be a new way of thinking about nuclear weapons, the offense-defense link, and about deterrence, end quote. And in a White House statement in 2003, President Bush said, quote, The contemporary and emerging missile threat from hostile states is fundamentally different from that of the Cold War. We cannot be wholly dependent on our ability to deter them. Second, supporters have said the ABM Treaty should be abandoned. In 1999, at the early stages of then Governor Bush's presidential campaign, he has been quoted as telling his advisors that, quote, my concern isn't with the ABM Treaty. My concern is to get a missile defense. And if the treaty doesn't interfere with that concern, then fine, we'll modify it. But if it does, then I don't care about the treaty, end quote. And, no surprise, on December 13, 2001, President Bush said, Today, I have given formal notice to Russia, in accordance with the treaty, that the U.S. is withdrawing from this almost 30-year-old treaty. I have concluded that the ABM Treaty is preventing the government's ability to develop ways to protect our people from future terrorists or rogue states' WMD attacks. Third, supporters express the warfighting belief structure by saying that hit-to-kill technology (laughs) should be tested outside the ABM Treaty. A year after withdrawing from the ABM Treaty, President Bush said, quote, our withdrawal from the ABM Treaty has made it possible to develop and test the full range of missile defense technologies and to deploy defenses capable of protecting our territory and our cities. I'm sparing you all from a really bad George W. Bush impression. Um, I'll also spare you from a Clinton impression. Um, so on the other side of the coin, how do these or how do these opponents express this arms control belief structure? They basically invert each of the statements I just made. The MAD doctrine is still relevant. <clears throat> on January twenty fifth, two 2001, less than a week after President Bush's inauguration, Senator Biden asked, quote, What happens as Russia's nuclear weapons go down? How can mutual deterrence of full-scale war be maintained? How can Russia accept a missile defense system that undermines that deterrence? And with respect to China, Biden goes on to ask, quote, how would a U.S. national missile defense affect China's strategic force structure, its relations with the United States? With numerically limited defense, could we accept China increasing its strategic forces from 18 warheads to 200 or more? Would that prompt an arms race between China and India, and then Pakistan, or even with Russia? Similarly, Dr. John Steinbruner, formerly of the Brookings Institution and a frequent critic of missile defense, told me in June 2005... Quote, the reality on a day-to-day basis is still mutual deterrence. People who say it's over, that is complete nonsense. If you want another reality, you need offensive restraint. Second, opponents say the ABM Treaty still furthers U.S. interests. On May 24, 1996, Anthony Lake, assistant to the president for National Security Affairs, said, Quote, the ABM Treaty remains a cornerstone of our arms control achievements. And throwing that into question would imperil the ongoing cuts in Russia's nuclear arsenal. Giving up the reduction of thousands of warheads for protection against a threat that doesn't yet exist is a bad trade-off. It simply doesn't make sense. Finally, opponents say that testing should be constrained by the ABM Treaty. In May 2005, Jerry Epstein, who was a member of President Clinton's National Security Council, told me that Quote, decisions of technical feasibility during those years were made based on the uncertainties. Namely, says Epstein, how likely is the technology to work and what are the likely reactions to pursuing it? Among those uncertainties, the most important one was how will you know what you need to know without breaking the ABM treaty? So for the Clinton administration, which represents... The bulk of opponents' time in office on the hit to kill um, interceptor. Technology was never considered outside the confines or the context of the ABM treaty and what it meant for the broader network of arms control treaties. How does this, well, we'll see how this reflects in a second. Now let's go to the points of irreducible uncertainty on the required capability and the U.S. capability for hit to kill technology. So, first, the adversary. The adversaries and potential adversaries in question for a hit-to-kill interceptor are Russia, China, the so-called rogue states, North Korea, Iran, and Iraq, and terrorist organizations. So the first question is their capability. How many missiles does each state have? Can those missiles strike the U.S.? And can they evade an eventual hit-to-kill interceptor? On the issue of how many, we know that Russia has thousands. They can build more. China maybe only has 20 to 30, but they can certainly build more. Among the rogue states or terrorist organizations, none, none of these states have a missile that can strike the U.S., let alone evade. And terrorist organizations have, been, have never been known to have that type of technology. But the big question mark, particularly on the issue of Russia and China, is intent. What will these states do to enhance their security? Will they build more missiles? Will they modify their missiles to evade? Will they give this technology to rogue states? There's no way of knowing what these states will do to enhance their security. Therefore, there's no way of actually knowing what the hit-to-kill interceptor needs to do to be effective. And then finally, the same thing as it applies generally. How many bullets I have here, or how many missiles, um, must a hit-to-kill interceptor strike down to be considered effective? Does it only need to get a few? Does it need to get a bunch? There's no way of knowing. (coughs) On the other side of the coin, the US capability. So referring back to that brief background where I described the five steps that comprise hit to kill, um, the first feat is booster speed and accuracy. Can the booster get the kill vehicle to the general area of the incoming warhead? On this, there are some ambiguous points. First, the booster used in almost all of the tests has been a prototype. And three out of the four interception failures have been due to booster technology. So what's the significance of these facts? On the positive side of of things, the prototype situation may not be important because the operational booster will be much the same. And in terms of the failures, they were quickly corrected. They weren't, there, was, there was no novelty to the actual failure, um, and they never occurred more than once. On the negative side, all of the data has still been from prototype boosters, and you never know how the actual operational one is going to behave. And in terms of the failures, if the most simple aspect of hit-to-kill interception can't work, what is that to say about the others? The less simple. And next, kill vehicle discrimination. Can a warhead be distinguished from decoys? Um, if any of you have read the policy literature or just the stuff in, in newspapers, this is usually the central feat of hit-to-kill technology that's considered. If you want to drag on the uh, can a bullet hit a bullet, this is can a bullet see a bullet? Um, and on this, there is quite a bit of ambiguity. First, the decoys that have been present have not been representative of those that an interceptor would likely face. So a lot of the debate over whether the US capability to build such an interceptor exists is whether, or, or what this data means. On one hand, the onboard sensor has only failed to distinguish a warhead from a decoy once out of 11 different attempts. And this one failure was due to a simple blockage in the coolant system's uh, plumbing that was subsequently um, repaired and never happened again. It happened on the second or third test. The other other part um, undermining the significance of the sensor issue is that because we haven't done it doesn't mean that we can't. It simply means that for the majority of the history of hit-to-kill, we were complying with the ABM Treaty, which said that we couldn't deploy... Radars in a forward position, and we couldn't have um, a missile, a incoming missile, operating without a beacon. It couldn't be too realistic. So the negative, the negative significance of the sensor data. Quite simple. There has never been a decoy that represents the actual decoys that an operational hit-to-kill interceptor would likely face. These decoys have been um, mylar balloons. First one, then two or three. Um, and they have had heat signatures greater than the actual warheads. So for opponents, this means we don't know a thing about whether a bullet can see a bullet. Kill vehicle guidance. Can the kill vehicle collide with the warhead? Well, the point of uncertainty is that due to the very few tests that have occurred and due to compliance with the ABM treaty, the, the trajectories of both the incoming missile and the interceptor were both scripted. So perhaps this means there is no data on um, the ability of a kill vehicle to be guided toward the interceptor. On the other hand, in each of the tests, this has never failed. The significance is unknown. So let's turn to the biases on the required capability for hit-to-kill. Excuse me. When supporters look at who is out there that could potentially strike the U.S., they say the only actors of concern are rogue states and terrorist organizations. They say this because though the U.S. does not discount the role of Russia and China, there's nothing the U.S. And China, the US can do about Russia and China. They already have a capability to strike us, and as I said before, they have the capability to do so in the future. If they're going to, they're going to. If they're not, they're not but we can stop rogue states and terrorists. On the other hand, missile defense opponents, remember with their um, belief that the capability and intent of the adversary is contingent, they look to Russia and China as the most likely adversary. and they, Because they say, if we pursue a missile defense system, then these states will become more aggressive. They will develop more missiles, and they will likely share that technology with rogue states. In terms of the quantity and quality of ICBMs, supporters say that all we need to concern ourselves with is a few incoming missiles with no countermeasures because they dismiss the potential for Russian and China um, sharing that technology. They don't deny that it could happen, but they say again, if it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. But us pursuing the missile defense system won't do anything about it, so let's try to defend against what we can actually defend against. On the other side, Opponents say, the only way that we will be able to field an effective missile defense system is if we can counter hundreds or thousands of ICBMs with sophisticated countermeasure technology. Because, again, they think that Russia and China will be the most likely adversaries because they will be threatened by our pursuing a capability to defend. Finally, supporters think that 10 to 30% of that already diminished threat is enough to enhance security, because it decreased costs, however small, and that will increase our deterrent. Whereas opponents think the current system is doing fine, that, well, after six or seven years of this administration, opponents think that we need to re engage arms control and multilateral efforts, but that that system of doing things works so well that the only valid goal for a hit to kill interceptor would be complete and immediate interception. Okay. And now, finally, turning attention to biases and defining the U.S. capability to build a hit-to-kill interceptor. The significance of the failures, supporters think the reasons have been minor and point to the fact that there have been five interceptors, while opponents think the reasons are irrelevant and they represent the distance from the required capability. In terms of the significance of, this, of the scripted conditions, supporters think that this can be expected for a new and complex project, and there has been valuable data produced. Supporters th- or opponents think it undermines the existence of any data or the value of any existing data, excuse me. Um, Finally, there are two quotes that kind of surmise supporter and opponent's positions on um, U.S. capability. First, um, by Dr. Pepe DiBiasso, who is a missile defense policy director. Um, and in a conversation I had with him in 2005, he said, quote, <coughs> It is generally not the position of science that a priori, something won't work and thus shouldn't be pursued. This seems to be the position of the Ted Postals of the world. Such a negative position about technical feasibility makes you wonder if the true motivation is just science. We don't know if these technologies are feasible because we have never gotten to that point, End quote. And in terms of the general opponent positions, uh, in 2001, President Clinton said, quote, We were trying to do things where we couldn't know with great precision what was right. You need to spend all this money on research for something that may or may not ever work. Even if it works, you may decide that the cost of putting it in is greater than the benefit because it leads to a nuclear buildup in other countries. And finally, in August of 2005, I talked with Philip Coyle, who was the Director of Operational Testing and Evaluation under Clinton. And he told me the primary criteria used to evaluate existing data were, quote, whether the threat was materializing and the implications that going forward with missile defense would hold for the overall strategic environment and our arms control objectives. Okay. So conclusions from all this. Why, after 50 years and $110 billion spent, can policymakers still not agree on whether we can build a missile defense system? My answer has obviously been due to the presence of irreducible uncertainty. The required capability and the U.S. capability require knowledge about what adversaries can and will do, as well as the significance of current developments for the ultimate technical program. Faced with irreducible uncertainty on both of these points, policymakers adhere to the logic of their strategic beliefs. And over time, without the opportunity for falsification, policymakers engage in this believer-versus-non-believer style of debate increasingly convinced that they are right and the opponents are wrong so briefly what are some implications of a framework for irreducible uncertainty and policymaking behavior under such conditions in terms of norms versus interests and in IR a great deal about the work about a great deal of work in IR has been about the norms versus interests um, and how they affect um, Behavior of states and individuals. However, under conditions of irreducible uncertainty, which actually may describe a great many issues of concern, there is no choice between the logic of appropriateness and the logic of instrumentality. Actors rely on their strategic beliefs, or their established beliefs, excuse me, to determine what their interests are and how best to achieve them. Under these conditions, then, norms and interests are inextricably linked. The offense defense balance. Almost 30 years of scholarship has considered the effect of the offensive and defensive nature of uh, weapon technology on international stability. But my framework for considering um, behavior under conditions of unusual uncertainty explains how policymakers determine whether a weapon technology is best suited for offensive or defensive purposes. Uh, Jervis, 1978, Levy, 1984, and Van Everen, 1999, all noted that states usually misperceive whether a technology is best suited for offensive or defensive purposes, but they don't explain why. And while Hopf-91 and uh, Lieber-2000 explicitly recognize the interaction between strategic ideas held by policymakers and their understanding of weapon technology, neither work explicates this relationship. Third, the nuclear revolution. Previous analysis of the nuclear revolution fails to explain why policymakers have consistently embraced contradictory implications (laughs) of the nuclear revolution, with some arguing for restraint and others pushing for uh, to redouble efforts to gain advantage. But a theoretical framework for behavior under reduced irreducible uncertainty explains why US nuclear strategy has repeatedly vacillated between these two alternative views. Fourth, nuclear proliferation. The debate over the effect of nuclear proliferation on international stability has been captured, I guess, by this dominant debate between Waltz and Sagan, with Waltz pointing to systemic realism to support an optimistic position and Sagan expressing pessimism based on the role of organizational factors. However, I argue that since nuclear weapons continue to be marked by irreducible uncertainty, both Waltz and Sagan may be right. It all depends on the strategic beliefs held by leaders in the recipient state. If they adopt something similar to the warfighting belief structure, then proliferation may increase tensions. But if they adhere to something like the arms control belief structure, then proliferation may provide greater incentives for cooperation. And finally... Climate change and genetic modification. Um, I'm just starting to look at these issues, but I certainly think that both issues represent some of the same qualities as missile defense, in that they are complex technical problems where policymakers don't quite understand what the problem is and therefore what the solution will be, and what emerges is this believer versus non believer sort of debate. So, with that, I'll open it up to questions. <coughs> Boy, I'll handle them. Okay, Alex? Uh
1: Because bias seems to suggest a deviation from a true value. right? And, in fact, there is no known true value here. So we really have are two different judgments about what to make of this uncertainty. So then why call it a bias?
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. I seem to have misplaced my pen. But, so the first... um, Thank you. The first question was about the presence of irreducible uncertainty. Is it actually irreducible? irreducible? Um, On that... Over time, definitely, so between 2007 and 1997 or 1987, there definitely is more information about whether this can be done. So the designation of irreducible uncertainty really applies to that specific point in time when they're making the decision. Um, So that there are different points of, quote, irreducible uncertainty over time that keep differing. Um, So the point of irreducible uncertainty in 87 is different from 97, it's different from 2007. But as policymakers are confronting it at that point in time, they don't have the information and is therefore irreducible. But
1: if the uncertainty is, if the scope of it is narrowing, mm-hmm. then a judgment can become more and more confident in the sense
0: over time, right? right? that That is definitely potentially true. I think that the way the facts play out is that the uncertainty has, hasn't been narrowing, um, that there's never been really a reduction in the uncertainty of who would be firing and what the adversary can do. In fact, on the condition of um, the adversarian capability, it's only gotten more uncertain as the Soviet Union fell and more states um, rose to potentially threaten us. Um, In terms of the the use of bias, I definitely have dealt with that. Um, I call it bias because policymakers don't themselves admit that there is no um, reference point so that they think that they are making a clear statement of fact. and while what exists is not determinate, um, there is some body of information that policymakers then <laughs> deviate from. So that's when I was going over um, the test data for um, the booster for the discriminate, discri- discrimination capabilities, for the guidance. On each of these points, there are facts. There is some data that says what can currently be done. Um, so it's then, why, do, why don't policymakers simply say, this is what we can currently do, and leave it there? No, they go to the next step and say it can or cannot be done, which would then be the bias.
1: Yeah. And uh I mean I I wonder am wondering where where don't you get the phenomenon you're talking about. I mean, you you presented as an average an average behavior. Mm-hmm. Never see anything but people lying about their policy positions lying about evidence that in favor of
0: it. Right. So I think that I mean, you're right. That there are most situations where policymakers are lying. Um, however if one were to spend a few years going and looking, you could say, look here, we know you know, the cost of healthcare per person in the U.S., and we know this guy is just blatantly lying. Um, I'm saying there are a, special, a subset of cases um, where the facts only show that the person is going beyond what is known, but don't in fact contradict the policymaker's behavior. Um, so that may differentiate the situation of irreducible uncertainty from the, the litany of issues where people simply lie. Andrew.
2: Yeah, I
1: I think this might be related. Um, I'm I'm, really uh, fascinated by your argument, and I I find it a compelling account of of this case, which I don't really know that much about. But but I also wonder if if uncertainty isn't a a broader, more ubiquitous characteristic of various policy issues. And, And so I guess I'm kind of, I have this general, are there issues that aren't uncertain? Are there (coughs) issues that aren't subject to the kinds of beliefs, the influence of beliefs uh, in the way that you're describing? And I guess, so that's sort of the the general question, and and specifically, it seems as though uncertainty is is your variable, you know, it's your uh, category, but it it also seems like it's something that's being uh, acknowledged by at least some of the policymakers Referring to you mm-hmm. read one statement in particular where the guy, I a Clinton advisor, yeah. said this is highly subject to uncertainty. Yeah. So, so it's not just your category, it's one that's being acknowledged in the field among some, sure. among the opponents. Um,
0: well, in a very specific way. But okay. yeah.
1: Um, and so I guess I guess I'm also wondering under what conditions does a policy issue become viewed as subject to uh-huh. And so it seems like, I mean, the, the one that you're looking at, plus the two that you labeled at the end, or, yeah. uh, pointed to climate change and uh, genetic modification, are ones that involve a high degree of technological complexity. Um, but it seems to me that I mean, there's uncertainty involved in issues that don't involve that technological complexity. I mean, just think of um, uh, interventions, debates over the, the likely success of foreign interventions. Exactly. That highly subject to uncertainty and yet maybe less often recognized as such in the policy
0: right okay so first on the let's take the point of that my my one interview because it was a really um, great moment where i had you know spent a number of months and looked at a bunch of policymakers as they were confused when i broached anything looking like academic terms, and finally this guy said it to me that, you know, it's all about dealing with uncertainties. I was like, bring it on. <laughs> and then he told me a very, very biased account of what just happened. So even though, this, he, so this was Jerry Epstein, who was a member of the National Security Council, and he said it's all about, you know, how we manage these things. And this is what everyone in the Clinton administration saw when they looked at missile defense but then he pointed to what the points of uncertainty were and what the potential choices were. And guess what? They weren't just what everyone agree, would agree to as the only points of uncertainty. Um, so even though, and you know, there are a host of people out there, um, like Phil Tetlock, who looks at how liberals and conservatives deal with these sorts of issues, even though liberals may actually be able to embrace uncertainty um, in a more complex fashion, they still do so, I would say, in a biased manner. Um, and how they define it. In terms of the other questions, could I paraphrase them in saying, are there situations that aren't uncertain and aren't all situations uncertain? Kind of that, that different interplay. Um, so the answer is yes. Um, basically, I think the, the the key difference that I'd try to work on is those points of irreducible uncertainty. Um, so to take your example of you know these debates about intervention, um, when I, I mean, the the root cause of uncertainty, of irreducible uncertainty, in defining the required capability of a technology is the unknown adversary, um, their capability and their intent. And this applies to any question of foreign policy, right? So the interest for me in missile defense technology is that somehow, between that realm of foreign policy decision-making and evaluating a technology, we usually, analysis has laundered that source of uncertainty, so that everyone agrees that we don't know what the other guy's going to do when we're strategizing, but when we turn to making a piece of technology to aid us in countering that guy, we treat, it, we treat that uncertainty as not present. So that's, I guess, um, I'm, I'm definitely not unaware um, that, that this form of irreducible uncertainty is everywhere. Um, I guess the the focus of this study and then why I would focus on the technology issues of genetic modification and climate change is to point out that this presence of reduced uncertainty that we all take as commonplace in foreign policy decision-making is also at the core of decision-making realms that we think are very, very rational.
1: Okay. If that
0: proves, again, your point about so I'll take the, the second question first on epistemic communities. Um, that's kind of where this project began was to try to analyze the role of, of these expert communities. And um, what I was frustrated by is that w- there's a great article by Emmanuel Adler on the epistemic <laughs> on the arms control epistemic communities, um, and that was kind of the the root of me developing this arms-control belief structure. However, when you look at that, and you also look at some of the epistemic community literature by Peter Haas, um, they usually, in these works, don't talk about why the knowledge-based community is so influential. That's to say, they usually, um, particularly in Haas's work on CFCs and climate change, um, he contrasts politics to knowledge and science. And it's a story of whether or not these experts, with their knowledge and science, can get in there and make the policymaking process um, more accurate, get a better solution. Um, so I would say, what about the other groups? There isn't just one epistemic community. There is another set of values and norms that unite them that make them think that certain facts are more relevant than others. And so by pointing to the the, the source of irreducible uncertainty, one, you point to the need for these epistemic communities, and two, you allow the recognition that there are multiple based on, you know, divergences and, and the values um, and then how, how they interpret the data. Um, the first question was it that does all does all of this come down to money? Well, what did you find when you looked into
1: our chat, That Those statements that you were quoting today were reflected into money allocation and research?
0: Oh. Yes. I mean, there was a big issue in the, in the 80s. It was always funny to see the, the difference between um, what Reagan wanted and what the Democratic Congress gave him. Um, and then once the, the program progressed, there was definitely um, kind of a diminishing role where the DOD just was tired of this program, you know, getting into everything um, or taking away from everything. Um, so the answer, I guess, is yes, there is a connection, um, but, of course, it's modified or moderated by political debate. John.
1: Yeah, mine actually follows on that. Um, uh, you treat it as pretty dichotomous. Yeah. But it seems to me that in some respects, for example, Reagan uh, basically wanted to spend a lot more money on this than the Democrats. It wasn't the Democrats wanted to spend zero. Definitely. So you get within each of these groups, you get people willing to spend, you know, almost everybody, I think, got them wrong would say, well, having a small research and development program to educates against uncertainty in these areas is, is justified and so forth. So your most strong opponent probably says that.
0: Definitely. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, but, and then you
1: have, within the opponents, you have gradations of people who and also presumably within the uh, as well.
0: You definitely do. And so, um, yeah, these were rather clunky in that they, you know, I, I presented them as ideal types and there's a range. Um, if I if I made it seem that the opponents wanted no money, that's just not true. Um, in fact, well, during has
1: that connotation.
0: yeah, but they were they were opposing the, the system while saying we want to research this. We know that the Soviets are out there, and you know who are we to be stupid and say we shouldn't see if we can defend against 10,000 nuclear missiles? We're only saying that this should their their big uh, mantra during the 80s was to keep it in the lab, to keep it at the level of basic science, um, and never move towards something that actually looks like a weapon. So in that, I would say that though they supported research, they did so, you know, with a wink and a nudge toward never letting this out of the laboratory. So, any other questions? Yeah.
2: In my question is that uh, uh, given uncertainty is inevitable, so what's your thinking about the, the relationship between uncertainty and the conceptualization of security? Because according to my observation, it seems that if we compare. Uh, the United States and uh, Russia and China. we saying that the United States can now seeking uh, absolute uh, secure security. So that uh, is it. Is this is uh, relevant to the the, the, the uni, unipolar movement of current United States? Because if, if we compare, uh, it, because for example, when I read some some uh, literature of Chinese security. Uh, strategies, these conceptualize security as a more relative determinant. Mm-hmm. Because probably China is not uh, and as a str- as, uh, as strong as the United States. So I'm just wondering whether you, you think about some comparative perspective or think about the, the political and social context of, of the conceptualization of security.
0: Well, I, I definitely think it, it comes out that um policymakers, based on their notion of, in this case, the implication of strategic weapons, have very, very different ideas of where insecurity comes from and the potential responses to it. Um, and I think, you know, as we've kind of teased out in the QA period, um, nothing I'm really saying on that front is is that novel. You know, we all know and, and there's been great stuff written about um, you know, great models written about how policymakers deal with imperfect imperfect information about adversaries' capability and intent. Um, So, you know, I think that the U.S.-Russian dyad and and the U.S.-Chinese dyad um, definitely reflect these issues of incomplete information. How does the U.S. deal with it? Um, I guess my addition to that literature would just be to say um, it's not simply... Incomplete information isn't that we don't have it right now, but we know what we have and we don't. And we know what we don't have, and it's simply a choice between the two. And this, I would argue, is often how these models of incomplete information would behave. So, um, I think that there has been a response. I think that, or I think that, that the that my um, work does kind of respond to this, but that other work may be a bit more germane to those areas. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if I got the, grabbed the question. Um, what part of the missile defense story is talked about, or is... What part
2: of the vacillation is explained by, by questions in uncertainty
1: regarding the technology as opposed to uncertainty regarding uh, other states'
0: responses yeah. to the development of equipment. Okay. So, is this primarily a debate about the should, or is this primarily a debate about the can? Um, I would say that if you read any of the literature, or if you listen to any of the folks that talk about this, um, it's all about adversaries' responses. And like I say, they usually kind of just black box the technology and say it is either right now good, promising, bad, not promising. Um, So if you look at the actual debates, they're almost all explicitly about adversaries' responses. Um, So the the, the puzzle for me was just um, the policymakers and the academic works kind of sloppy treatment of that other segment of the debate, which is the can. Um, That everybody treated this like it was known, though if you look, if you give a brief overview to the debate, everybody says different things about it. So I guess, yeah, that answers things. Zach, I want to thank you. And thank you. you we we'll continue to work on motivated reasoning, I suspect, much of the rest of you. So please look him up and carry on the conversation further. Zach, thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Ray. You know, usually when I think about motivated reasoning, I'm thinking about a motive, sort of underlying it. And in your case, the motive seems to just be a belief
1: in right. one of these two worldviews.